Hello folks and welcome back. My name is Nolan Ruby and this is the On Being Christian Podcast. The On Being Christian Podcast is a ministry of the Wasatch Front Baptist Church here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we're so glad that you chose to listen today. Um, We've got kind of a transition in seasons going on here, though it would usually be a lot earlier than what it is now. We've still got snow coming. Um, But the thought of transitions and those pivot points in our lives, it led me to thinking about some of the way in which we sometimes do things. Most of the time, just speaking for myself, we like those big, new, fresh starts. You know, the change of a season, or what's more, the change of a year. You know, we make New Year's resolutions and um, new beginnings and spring cleanings and all those different types of things. That's just the way we think. Because sometimes I think we get so bogged down with thinking and focusing on so many different things that a new season just kind of brings a fresh approach and allows us to see the clarity of what's needed in the present. And that that idea led me to do some study. And I thought, how often, how, how, how far could I reduce that which matters down? If I were to make my, in, in other words, I tell the folks here at Wasatch Front Baptist Church all the time, decisions don't make priorities. Priorities make decisions. If I set the right priorities in my life, the correct decisions will result. They're products of the right priority. And so then the thought was, well, how far, how far can I reduce these decisions down? And a theme from God's Word popped out to me. And that's the title of this. The theme and and the title, or however you want to look at it, is one thing. One thing. That's kind of how far down I got, was one thing. I want to share a couple scripture verses with you concerning this idea of just dwindling everything down to seeing the one thing that matters more than anything else. And just in keeping with the content of this podcast on being Christian, concerning the Christian life, there's one thing that must always be at the forefront of everything else. I want to show you this from the Bible. Luke chapter 10 is kind of where I'm starting, and I'll read 38 through 41 to give us a direction which to start off from. The Bible says, Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. Now, if you didn't know this, whenever the Bible uses the word certain in reference to a story, we're talking about an historical event. This actually happened. These are real people we're talking about. Okay, Verse 39 says, And she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, 
Thou art careful and troubled about many things. For one thing is needful, excuse me, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken from her. And so to set the picture here, you have a story. These two women are, are at this point in the ministry of Jesus Christ, very familiar with him. Earlier on, he had risen their brother from the dead, Lazarus, or Lazarus, excuse me, and they're not totally unfamiliar with him. In fact, he's in their house, and Martha is responding to his presence in her home culturally, and Mary is responding personally. You see, Martha's working, and she's cumbered about, the Bible says. That word cumbered is a word that means benumbed or hindered or hampered by activity. It's like negatively occupied. In other words, she's doing all the right things, quote unquote, right being in air quotes there. She's doing all the quote right things that are supposed to be being done when a guest is in your home. She's cleaning, she's cooking, she's she's doing all the things. She's serving. The Bible says she's cumbered about with much serving. And she's getting annoyed because her sister is not helping her at all. In fact, the Bible says her sister is sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. And Martha gets to a point where she's just about had it. And she goes to Jesus, and she says, bid her, which means tell her. Martha's cumbered about. Um, he asked her, or she asked him first, dost thou not care? Now, I want you to focus with me just for a second. She, Martha, just asked Jesus Christ if he doesn't care. Now, if that doesn't show you the very, that is the 100% wrong thing to ask the Son of God. But because of the way she was living her life, it put her, it set her priorities up in such a negative way that the decisions that her priorities were producing caused her to ask Christ if he didn't care. And then she went on to tell Christ, Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she should help me. So she she gets kind of carried away with the service, the culture, the duty. She puts the relationship on the back burner because she's got things that she's doing. She's moving. She's shaking. She's doing all the stuff. And it led her to do two very, very negative things. Ask Jesus Christ if he didn't care, number one. Number two, tell Jesus Christ what to do. And both of those things, I think, are a really good example of where Christianity has landed today. Instead of going to Christ with a meek and quiet spirit, with humility and thankfulness, for everything that he's already done, so much of which we don't even have the capacity to understand, we go to him because we are running our life by our methods, and our methods aren't matching up with what he told us to do. And instead of correcting ourselves, we attempt to correct Christ. It's a sad reality. The response that she gets is interesting Verse 41 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing, 
I put a box around those two words in my Bible. One thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, if we work our way through this nice and slow, the first thing that you see is he calls her by her name twice. Now, if you go through the Word of God and you look at the stories in which this took place, there's several for us to to take the context from. In fact, in Genesis chapter 22, 9 through 12, God calls Abraham's name twice. Abraham, Abraham. In Genesis 46, 1 through 4, he calls Jacob's name twice. Jacob, Jacob. In Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 5, he calls the name of Moses twice. Moses, Moses. Interesting. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, 10 through 11, he calls the name of Samuel twice. In Luke chapter 22, 31 through 32, he calls the name of Simon twice. And in Acts chapter 9, 1 through 5, that's the testimony, that's the, the scripture that records the salvation of Paul, who was at that point Saul. He calls the name of Saul twice. Saul, Saul. Each time the Bible records God calling a person by their name twice, the conversation to follow is very, very personal and demanding of individual action. The question really is, instead of running our life by culture and by duty, we should be looking or or running our life from the perspective of listening for God to call our name twice. Because when he does, everything that comes after that will change my life if I listen. And so this is no different in our text in Luke chapter 10. He calls her name twice, Martha, Martha, and then he says to her, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Careful there is a word that means to be anxious. It's the idea of being distracted. And troubled is a word that means, the word, the old English word is turbid, uh, which is a word for confusion or disorder or perplexion. being perplexed, okay? The Oxford English Dictionary defines turbid as a um, full, uh, excuse me, full of disorder and violent or thick fog. It's a dense uh, vision uh, characterized by producing obscurity of the mind. And so when Jesus Christ is talking to Martha, he says, Martha, Martha, says her name twice, Thou art careful and troubled about many things. In other words, he says, you, you're so fogged over. You're so dense with a lack of understanding. You've got, your, you've got the wrong priorities. And having the wrong priorities has resulted in you making some incredibly foolish decisions, not the least of which is asking the Son of God if he cares, number one, and then number two, attempting to tell him what to do. This is the height of stupidity. And how did we get there? Well, we were focused on the wrong things. We were focused on the wrong things. He says, you're careful and troubled about many things. And then he offers a whole separate view. He says, but one thing is needful. 
And that's the reason for the title and the reason for the concept. One thing is needful. And we'll get to that one thing in just a minute. But I want you to understand, folks, life can be full of perplexities, full of fog-causing confusion. How do you fight that? How do you think your way through that? Well, I've got to remove as many of the decisions as possible, and I remove decisions by making correct priorities. And if I make one priority, one, the priority of Jesus Christ, then all the other things I might find aren't really that meaningful. One thing, he said to her, one thing is needful. And then he said, Mary hath chosen that good part which shall never, or excuse me, which shall not be taken away from her. So he tells Martha, you're careful and troubled, turbid, anxious over way too many things. Your sister, Mary, she's chosen the one thing that removes the confusion. And that one thing, is a, it's a good thing. It will never be taken from her. That word needful, he shows you one thing is needful. That word needful is um, necessity or some things that are driven of necessity. Circumstances, occasions characterized by need or by requirement. Okay, that's an interesting word. It's, it's, it's placed, being necessity, something being a necessity um, is, a, is a condition uh, that shows... Uh, poverty without it, having little or nothing to support oneself without that one thing. And sometimes I think this is exactly where we are as Christians. We have everything we want and nothing we need. We're buried with uh, anxieties and fog-causing confusion because we are careful and troubled about the wrong things. When Martha had her name called twice, by Jesus Christ, this is exactly what he told her. You are way too careful and way too troubled about too many things. One thing is needful. In other words, it's one thing that if you have this thing, everything else falls into its correct place. I think that sometimes when dealing with Jesus Christ, this is exactly what is needed. We often come to him with everything on the table as far as a negotiating ship except for the one thing that he wants. And what's the one thing that he wants? Well, folks, he wants you. And the one thing that he wants you to want is for you to want him. That's the simplicity of this. He loved you so that you can love him. He didn't love you so that you could fill your life with things outside of him. Okay? It is important to remember how many good parts the Bible has recorded here. The Bible says that good part, as in there's only one good part. There's only one good thing. It's not about all the things. It's about the one good thing. What really is interesting is this, this is not the only time in the Bible you find this phraseology. If I go over to Mark chapter 10, there's another story I'd like to read to you. Mark chapter 10, uh, I'll start in verse 17, and I'll go down to verse 22. This is the story of what most people commonly know as the rich young ruler or the rich young man. 
if we start in Mark 10, start in verse 17, it says, And when he had gone forth into, uh, into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. So what's really interesting here, before I get too much further into this, is you've got this young man, he's a rich man. Now, don't let some of these things pass you by. What is the probability of a young man being a rich man leans into pretty heavily the idea that this man had his wealth and his status by inheritance. It goes further in towards, towards that kind of takeaway when you see how it started in verse 17, or excuse me, um, yeah, verse 17, he knelt down, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And that was his wording, this rich young ruler, this rich young man, what must I do? that I may inherit eternal life. Interesting question. What's even more interesting than that is that Jesus Christ answered his exact question as the man phrased it. He basically told him, you have to be perfect. If you want eternal life, if you want, if you want to inherit, he didn't say, here's what you need to do to get eternal life. He says, this is what you need to do to inherit eternal life because that was the question that the young man asked. I want to inherit it. Okay, well then, this is how you do that. Be perfect. He told him, keep the commandments. Now, this is where it gets telling. Verse 20, and he answered and said, this is the man answering Jesus Christ. He answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. So now, I want you to notice, what did the young man do? This young man looked into the face of God. Jesus Christ is God. The Bible says uh, that Jesus Christ's name is Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. That's who Jesus Christ is. This man's priorities were so focused on self that it caused him to look into the face of God, Jesus Christ, God with us, and say, all these things have I observed from my youth. So in other words, Jesus Christ said, okay, this is about you. Having eternal life is about you and your actions and your worth. Well, if that's what it's about, then you need to be perfect. And this man looked at Jesus Christ and said, I am. I am perfect. From my youth, I'm perfect. <laughs> Folks, that is a picture, perfect example of having the wrong priorities and not knowing it until the decisions you make are vastly in contradiction to what the Bible says we are. There's a lady here in my church. I love her. And she says all the time, and I'm, I'm going to steal it from her, and I told her I would. She, she was talking about something that she was experiencing one day, and she said, I don't know who you think you're not. And I, I love the way she said it. And that's that's when I read this, this guy did not know who he wasn't, which is sometimes more important than knowing or thinking you know who you are. 
He answered and said unto him, verse 20, Master, all this have I observed from my youth. So we have an incredibly arrogant young man who thinks that eternal life is something that can be earned. He asks how to earn it. How do I inherit it? Jesus Christ answers his question exactly. This is how you inherit it. This is how you earn it. And this man said, got it. Not only that, but I've already done that. I've already done that. I am perfect. I, I've kept all these things from my youth up. He's got a very convoluted sense of self-worth. Look at how Jesus answers him. This is very interesting. Verse 21, then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? If you go back to the very first podcast on this channel, it's called, But God Loved Me. And that's exactly why I am here today. That's exactly why I'm Six feet above ground with a wife and kids and the opportunity to serve the Lord because God loved me. And the same thing can be said for this rich young man. Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest. One. Now I'm guessing from our context over in... um, uh, where we started this, Luke chapter 10, I'm guessing that that one thing that he's lacking is going to be the one good thing that Mary chose, but we'll let the Bible show us. He said, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up thy cross and follow me. Interesting. Now, nowhere else in the Bible does the Bible say, That if you sell everything you have and give it to the poor, you'll go to heaven. So why did this man get told that by Jesus Christ? I think the answer is pretty self-evident. This man, for this man, his wealth was his value. His his status, his connection, his uh, office, all directly tied to money, was his sense of value. And Jesus Christ knew that in order for this man to have a relationship with God, in order for this man to repent and be converted, he would have to do away with his opinion of worth, which in this instance was money. And uh, sadly, verse 22 says, and he was sad at that saying, the man was, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. That man walked away from eternal life, for temporary comfort. He walked away from everlasting life with God the Father for temporary money, status, reputation. And folks, the sad reality is is that so much of humanity is still doing that. Why? Because we lack one thing. The one thing might be different from person to person. In verse 21, look what it says. Um, Take up thy cross and follow me. What was he lacking? He was lacking Jesus Christ. What did Mary choose that Martha was too cumbered with serving to understand? Mary chose Jesus Christ. What's the one thing that must be chosen before anything else can even be correctly understood. What's the one priority as a Christian you have to set in your life before anything else can be correctly understood? Jesus Christ. 
That is all that matters. He is all that matters. Everything else, <clears throat> just noise. Just noise. Interesting the way that they, the way they lay that out. It's not important to remember how many good parts the Bible has recorded here. The Bible says that it's the one good part. That's in Luke chapter 10. Same thing for where we are now. Excuse me. The one thing, Mark chapter uh, 10, 17 through 22. <clears throat> the one good thing that thou lackest. You see this same concept over in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, and it's, 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 it's actually the whole chapter, and I'm not going to read it. It's chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 34. It's the story of when Jesus Christ heals a man blind from birth, and this action that Jesus Christ took for this man threw a huge monkey wrench and these folks and their understanding, okay? If we start in verse 1, it says, And Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's one of those questions. The disciples ask it, and their, their whole context is wrong. Everything that they understand, which led them to ask that question the way that they asked it, they gave Christ two options. Someone here is bad. Either this man's bad or his parents are bad. Otherwise, why was he born blind? That's a very cultural thing. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the work of God should be made manifest in him. So that's kind of a lead up to what we have coming. Jesus answers his disciples. He says, the way you ask the question is entirely wrong. This man didn't sin, and neither did his parents. But he was born blind for the glory of God. <laughs> what in the world does that mean? How, how does that work? Verse 4, he says, I must work the works of him that sent me. This is Jesus Christ talking. While it is yet day, the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken... He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Now, I want you to understand what's happened so far. Jesus Christ has confronted his disciples about the very context of the way they're looking at the situation being wrong. He then goes on to say that this was done specifically so that people could see the glory of God, and then he offers the glory of God on display by healing someone who has never once seen, not once, blind from birth. Okay. <clears throat> Verse 8, The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him, but he said, I am he. So the blind man said, no, I'm him. I, I'm, I can see now, and I couldn't see before. Therefore said they unto him, how were, thee, how were thine eyes opened? And he answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay 
and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. So this has happened, and now they're hunting the man down. They're like, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you talking about? He spit in your eyes, and you can see now? Where, where is this guy? We want to talk to him. He says, I don't know where he's at. I, I don't know. Verse 13, they brought the Pharisees, or excuse me, they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. Now, if you understand at this point, the Pharisees were kind of the religious sectional leaders of the time. And they certainly didn't like Jesus Christ. They had rejected him over and over and over again. They did not believe that he was the son of God. Um, and they were actively looking at this point for reasons to do away with him. Verse 14, and he was, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight so this is the second time the man has been asked this. He said unto him, uh, he put clay upon my eyes, I washed, and I do see. <laughs> I like how the man has kind of condensed this story down. It's almost like he senses that he might be giving this answer several times. So this is the second time that he's been asked, and the second time that he's given the answer. And the, the answer is very simple. This guy who's named Jesus did this, I once was blind, but now I see, as a result of what this man did. That's the second time he's given the answer. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. So now they're arguing, because in the culture, to do any work on the Sabbath day was a sin. This was the Sabbath, and apparently they're defining a man who washed his face as work, and so that makes him a sinner. So this, there's got to be something wrong here. Talk about, talk about a cheap view of the healing ministry of Christ. Verse 17, they say unto the blind man, again, what sayest thou of him that hath opened thine eyes? <laughs> so now they're going to dig in a little bit. This is the third time he's being questioned. He's, he is a prophet. That's what he said. Verse 18, But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. So they're bringing the parents involved now, and they're saying, okay, listen, he's saying that he was blind. He's saying that this guy named Jesus uh, did this thing, and, and now he sees. What do you say? Was he blind or was he not blind? Okay. Verse 19. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who ye say was born blind? Interesting. It's almost like if you say he was blind, we may not even believe you. How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son. Okay. And that he was born blind. Okay. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes? We know not. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. So the parents are very afraid. Jesus Christ came and healed their son. They said, here's what we're willing to say. We're willing to say that that's our son. And we're willing to say that he was born blind. And that's all we're willing to say. If you want more information, ask him. He was, he's of age. Leave us alone. 
And so here we go back to the blind man, verse 34. Therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. And look what he says here. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. One thing he knew. Very simple. I was blind. Now I see, and Jesus did it. Folks, if your entire life is lived from the perspective of understanding one thing, you were lost, now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. And Jesus Christ did it. That would be a life lived for the glory of God. The, the, the Pharisees didn't accept that. In verse 26, then said they to him again, what did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? This is the fourth time that this man has been asked this by the same group of people. He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? And then they lost their ever-loving righteous minds. Verse 28, Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. <laughs> this guy just kind of digs it in, doesn't it? He just digs it in a little bit more. He says, well, well you're true. You don't, you don't really understand any of this, but here's the truth. Whether he's someone you know or whether he's someone you don't know, I was blind and now I see. Verse 31, now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doth his will, or excuse me, doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. So what was the result of this man receiving his sight? Well, the obvious, he received his sight, but ultimately the, the culture cast him out. They got rid of him. Why? Because he wouldn't let go of the one truth that he very clearly understood. And then he asked the people that were accusing him if they would become Jesus' disciples. And they said, we don't need him. We have Moses. And uh, the man kind of pushed back on that. He just asked a question. If this man were not God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, and they said to him the same thing that the disciples asked Jesus Christ when this story started. But they didn't ask it. They accused it. They said, you're born in sin. Get out. And so the man left. But he left seeing. <laughs> Folks, one thing. One thing. I don't know some of you. Some of you I know. Here's what I know about all of us. Life can hit pretty hard. It can throw some really twisted pitches our way. But when we remember not to be careful and troubled, troubled about many things, when we remember to choose that one thing, when we remember to remember that whereas we were blind and now we see, we were lost and now we're found, the life lived from that perspective 
is a life lived choosing the one good thing. How do I get that one good thing, that one needful thing? Well, if we go back to our text, um, I think we started in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. All the way back there, look what it says in verse 42. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall never be taken from her. Chosen there is a word that means to select. It's the point which motion or action proceeds to lay forth or to relay or to relate in words set to action. How do I choose the one thing? Well, I can't just say I chose it, which is the whole content and purpose of this podcast. I think Christians have, or Christianity has been reduced to nothing more than, well, I said I'm a Christian. But in reality, being a Christian has a whole lot more to do with how you choose to live as opposed to what you choose to say. Being a Christian means following Christ. And what does following Christ look like? It looks like always remembering one thing. I was blind, now I see. I'm not careful and troubled about many things. I've chosen that one good part that shall not be taken away from me. And when it all goes, I remember there's one thing that in my natural state I lack, and that's Jesus Christ. Everything else just doesn't hold that much water. There's a pretty common verse. Most of us, if not most of the people in our lives, at some level, you have seen this. It's Joshua chapter 24 and verse 25. This is so often, you know, posted on little placards and plaques and boards and homes. Joshua 24 and verse 15 I'm just get over there. Excuse me. I'll jump over there and, and read it directly from the Bible. <clears throat> I know I have this in my house, and I have it in the house I grew up with over the doorway. Joshua 24, 15, the Bible says, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods, little g, which your fathers served, that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Folks, just make a choice. You say, how do, I, how do I do that? How do I make a choice? Well, if you've already accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, a choice is simply choosing to be Christian in the same way that you became one. Repentance towards God every day. I'm not saying get saved over and over again. I'm saying live according to the freedom that you now have in Jesus Christ. But if I've never accepted Christ, if I've never gotten to the point where I've repented of my sins and asked the Lord to forgive me, then that's the choice you, have, you must make. And until that choice is made, you lack one thing, and it's the most important thing that you could possibly, possibly ever have. The one good thing that can't be taken away from you. The love of Jesus Christ. One thing. So in this time, these transition points in life, you know, the, the easy transition points are those um, uh, seasons and years, you know, seasons change and we clean house and we want a new start. 
Sometimes there's other things in life that can cause transition points. Pain, that's one. Vulnerability, that was exploited, that's one. Things that hit that you didn't see coming, these are transition points. These are pivot points in life. And they cause you to kind of question the methods you've taken. So what do you do when those types of things happen? Well, if I can encourage you, focus on the one good thing, the one needful thing, the one good part that can't be taken away from you. And when everybody starts to ask you a thousand questions, and they will, when everybody starts to say the same questions over and over again, and they will, you can simply say, listen, I don't know about all the other stuff, but here's the one good thing that I know. Here's the one thing I understand. I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And Jesus Christ did it. Why? Because he loved me. He loved me. Folks, I hope you uh, were helped by that. As we go into the spring, there's lots of different opportunities that I, uh, that I hope you'll find to, to be a Christian, to serve the Lord. And if you're ever in Salt Lake City, I'd love to meet you. Swing by the, the contact information for the church, and the address is right on the website, wasatchfrontbaptistchurch.com. That's W-A-S-A-T-C-H, frontbaptistchurch.com. Wasatch is the mountain range here in the Salt Lake City Valley. And uh, my email address and the phone number for the office here at the church is right on there. And so I'd love to meet you. Just say, hey, come in by to introduce myself or, or drop an email. Or if you have questions, you can drop a question, and I will answer every single one. It may not be right away, but I will get to it. I appreciate you listening. It's not an honor that I take lightly. I do not um, take this platform lightly either. I, I thank the Lord uh, I thank the Lord for it, and I ask him that he would be effective in it, that he'd make me worthy of it. And so I'm going to let you go. We're going to go do whatever we got going on. I got some travel coming up, and so <clears throat> I'll leave you with it. Let's have a word of prayer, if you don't mind, together. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for giving us the one good thing, your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to make the right priorities that set in motion decisions that honor you things that we're not so uh, bent on uh, bringing glorification or betterment to ourselves, but that our lives would be focused, our decisions, our priorities would be focused on the furtherance of the gospel. Father, I pray that if we ask or if we claim to be Christians, that our life would reflect that. By your grace, all we can do is ask for your help. We can't do it without you. We certainly have tried and failed every time. Lord, please help us. We ask these things and we leave them entirely in your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I love you. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.